Welcome to the Western Baul podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Confirmation Bias, Working with the Tendency to Look for Validation of Our Worldview, and was given by Bandu Dunham in Prescott, Arizona on June 15th, 2019. Bandu gravitated to the spiritual path at a young age and has been a writer and editor of a spiritual publication. He is a noted glass artist and author of several books on glass art. He is also author of the book, Creative Life. Bandu Dunham. So confirmation bias. Are people familiar with the idea of confirmation bias? Have you heard of it? It's, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon in, in psychology uh, and social sciences. From Wikipedia, the, the, the definition they have of confirmation bias is, confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or hypotheses. Uh, so that's a real nice capsule definition, but here's a little bit more, a little bit longer from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which again, I think only exists online anymore. You know, I remember we used to have a shelf full of encyclopedias, you know, you pull things out when you need to do a school report. Anyway, Encyclope Encyclopedia Britannica, Online, what they have to say is, <clears throat> confirmation bias, the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. This biased approach to decision-making is largely unintentional and often results in ignoring inconsistent information. Existing beliefs can include one's expectations in a given situation and predictions about a particular outcome. People are especially likely to process information to support their own beliefs when the issue is highly important or self-relevant. And it goes on for a couple more paragraphs here, background and history. Confirmation bias is one example of how humans sometimes process information in an illogical, biased manner. Many factors of which people are unaware can influence information processing. Philosophers note that humans have difficulty processing information in a rational, unbiased manner once they have developed an opinion about the issue. Humans are better able to rationally process information, giving equal weight to multiple viewpoints, if they are emotionally distant from the issue, although a low level of confirmation bias can still occur when an individual has no vested interests. One explanation for why humans are susceptible to confirmation bias is that, we, that it is an efficient way to process information. Humans are bombarded with information in the social world and cannot possibly take the time to carefully process each piece of information to form an unbiased conclusion. Human decision-making and information processing is often biased because people are limited to interpreting information from their own viewpoint. People need to process information quickly to protect themselves from harm. It is adaptive to rely on instinctive, automatic reflexes that keep humans out of harm's way. 
Another reason people show confirmation bias is to protect their self-esteem. People like to feel good about themselves, and discovering that a belief that they highly value is incorrect makes people feel bad about themselves. Therefore, people will seek information that supports their existing beliefs. Another motive is accuracy. People want to feel that they are intelligent, and information that suggests one holds an inaccurate belief or made a poor decision suggests one is lacking intelligence. There's a lot of, of points there that we'll be coming back to from a couple of different angles. We probably are all biased at least a little bit most of the time. And oftentimes it doesn't matter uh, because, you know, for small issues, who cares? But there are times when it's, um, you know, it can be pretty significant. I think um, being truly unbiased is maybe one of these uh, sort of unattainable goals that we can strive for, but might, you know, probably shouldn't. Uh, assume that we've accomplished. <laughs> so um, in practical terms, in terms of like um, spiritual practice and personal evolution, uh, I want to look at, at confirmation bias and the ways that it affects how we perceive our world and interact with the world, um, and particularly how we, um, how we relate to the world and other people from that foundation. Confirmation bias, one, one of the ways of looking at it is it's it shows up very practically in, as that feeling of, I knew it. You know, that feeling you get sometimes that something happens, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic, or you, you go out and the, all the lights are red. You go, I knew it. I knew something was going to happen. I knew that, that whenever that comes up, it's an indication you might be operating under some kind of confirmation bias. When, when you have that feeling that I knew this thing was going to happen. It's, oh, I think we sometimes go into situations expecting a certain result. And the phenomenon of confirmation bias will lead us to interpret the circumstances in accordance with that bias. And then everything becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You may have had the experience, we'll, we'll say this in the, the easy way, you may have had the experience of observing someone else who says, such as, you know, they have some catastrophe, and then you go, this always happens to me. You know, I always pick the guys who turn out to be jerks. I always, you know, I always pick the woman who turns out to be like my mother. I always, you know, whatever. I always buy a car that turns out to be a lemon. You know, all these things that are, that we, we, we think it's an objective thing going on in reality. Every time I go for a hike, it rains. You know, um, that, that angle on perception and it's interesting because often the, uh, the things that we, are, we perceive as always happening, like, for example, like every time I want to go for a hike, it rains, or the weather is bad or something, right? If you really looked at it objectively, if you kept a log, every time I want to go for a hike, you know, the date and what's the weather, and you do that for like a year, and you look at it objectively, you would see that in fact... It is not true that every time you go for a hike, you want to go for a hike at rain. What about the more often than normal? My confirmation bias is I have an extraordinary ability to be in a checkout line and when they're going to change the tape. I have, it's unbelievable. I bet I, I would swear that I'm at least twice as probable. You know, we couldn't really answer that without doing a scientific study, you know, like this, like logging everything. But it's interesting. I mean, I, I had that experience. Wherever, whenever I change lanes and change uh, checkout lines, 
the line that I go into always ends up being slower than the line I was in. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, but it always feels to me that way. I have that also. Yeah, yeah. me too. What, what? The, what? the thing of the, the check, I get on the line and that line stops moving for one reason. It's not true, but I actually say to people, yes, you don't get in this line, I'm always in the slowest line. I say the yeah. same <laughs> thing, exactly. There's a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy. We're very intuitive. We're much more intuitive than we tend to recognize. And, you know, there could be indications of when, of which line they're about to change the tape in that you're not consciously perceiving that you're picking up on somehow. So I don't want to get too metaphysical. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I really looked into it closely to find that I'm looking at the checkout lines and actually unconsciously picking the one where it looks like that's the checkout person who is new or least competent or who's already been on their ship for 12 hours and is <laughs> screwing up. So that's the line I'm going into. You know, in the same way that like, Sometimes in the dating world, you know, we're attracted to a person of the opposite sex who's actually, same sex, whatever, who's actually going to fulfill our, our, our expectation that we always pick a jerk, you know, or we always pick someone who has certain qualities that are problematic. Our unconscious is very, very perceptive, you know, and always pulling in information that we're not necessarily consciously aware of. And so much information that we are processing all the time if we stopped, very rationally observed every phenomenon and made a conscious, rational decision about everything we see, you know, we couldn't function. You don't have time to do all that. So it's a shortcut. You know, confirmation bias and other things that we do um, are, are shortcuts that enable us to get through the day in a way that, you know, while not 100% objectively rational, gets us by most of the time this kind of kind of functional. I think one of the things they've done scientifically is they just calculate how much, how many inputs we get, sensory inputs. I mean, if you look around this room, just glancing around the room, you pick up a tremendous amount of stuff that you don't register. I mean, I'm not registering really what each of those figures in the case are, but you know, like when they hypnotize people and stuff, you can actually zoom in on a memory. I think there's different ways of describing, you know, the, the spiritual process. I think um, it may not necessarily be about making everything conscious mm -hmm. as far as every sensory input, but um, I would say it's maybe more about having a, a, a conscious access to everything. So that things like, I mean, we'll talk, we're gonna talk about confirmation bias in more detail here, but um, being aware of some of these things that are unconscious so that we can not be as limited in our perception. Uh, and our experience. The, uh, there was a movie, I don't know if people saw it, it was a number of years ago, called Born in Brothels. Did anyone see that? It, it was about, um, it's in India, and um, it was about the children of prostitutes. And so these children had been born in brothels. And this, um, these people were making a documentary. I guess the documentary was about this organization that went in to try and like sort of break the cycle of poverty and prostitution that, you know, typically these children, you know, the, the girls would end up going into prostitution too, because that's what their mothers did and that's where they were living in the broth. So they were trying to break the cycle of the poverty and prostitution by giving these children, um, boys and girls, educational opportunities. And there was this one boy, like they gave him a camera and he turned out to be this incredible 
like talented natural photographer. They showed some of these pictures this 11-year-old boy was taking around Bombay or somewhere. Uh, you know, these very sensitive, beautifully composed pictures, you know, and, and then they were trying to get the girls into school. And it was great, you know, they were doing this whole thing. But there was a one grandmother who they were getting ready. It was the day that the, her granddaughter was going to go to school. You know, eight-year-old girl was going to start school. And the grandmother comes out and says, no, no, because today is Thursday. And uh, it was on a Thursday that such and such bad thing happened to me. Therefore, nothing will be done on a Thursday. She may not go to school. It's like she was, and, and you know, they resolved it. Here's this opportunity for your grandchild. But because we sometimes have these superstitions. And then, you know, I mean, I'm sure on Friday, there'd be some other excuse, right? If we're, if we're on Wednesday, there'd be some other reason. The, the whole point, the point was that the grandmother was like so rigid and in fact, probably threatened by the prospect of her granddaughter, you know, having this different kind of life. I'm projecting a little bit, but on some level, maybe thinking about what it said about her, that she didn't have that life. And here's someone with a better opportunity. So confirmation bias can show up in that kind of way, too, where we deny opportunities to ourselves or to others based on what we're assuming to be true or what we have seen in the past that we, you know, we just want to keep confirming the thing we think we already know. So Thursday, bad news. Thursday's like bad news, right? How far do you want to take that? You can certainly come up with reasons for every day of the week. Uh, you know, more uh, large-scale manifestation of confirmation bias. We can see in you know, like the polarization of society these days in the political domain. And one of the things that goes on, the way I see it, is there's this, you know, in the us versus them polarization that happens, which shows up in various ways, but obviously in the political domain, there's a thing that happens where, like my group, the group I'm in, we are the real people. And the people who are not, who are in a different group, who have a different belief or whatever, different race or whatever division you want to use to separate people, those people are somehow less real, less human than my group. And it's a very tribal tribal kind of compulsion that you see around the world. Um, and in fact, some, in, in some tribes, um, their name for themselves, you know, we call them, you know, we call them such and such a tribe, but then the name they call themselves means the people. Which, yeah, and different tribal peoples, their name for themselves just means the people, which kind of implies that the other, the other tribes are not the people on some level, right? Or they're, they're people that are qualified somehow, that other group. Um, and it's not always hostile, but there's something about that where we give more reality to what's in our own sphere, you know, to what we know, and less reality, even less humanity to other groups. And that being the case, you know, when confirmation bias um, interacts with that, then we look for and confirm ways in which other people seem to be less than us, less human, less real, less important. And that can build over time um, to the point where terrible things happen, as we've seen in history. Yeah. Human is a really big category. And my, my personal feeling is like people can be human and still have some very misguided, you know, beliefs that um, I certainly wouldn't adhere to or, you know, support in any way. But there, 
And, and this is a common thing in spiritual te- teachings too, is like we have on a, at a deep enough, if you look deep enough, we all have what my teacher called organic innocence and the Buddhists call basic goodness. It's in there. Now, it's, it, in most of us, it's masked to varying degrees by layers of other stuff. Mm. Confirmation bias being one of those layers of, of um, prejudice perceptions and assumptions and misperceptions about reality and habitual patterns of action. And uh, if you look deep enough beneath all those things, there's a common humanity that we all have. And I think... You know, as, as someone who's studying spiritual matters, you know, it behooves me to try and find that in everybody. Not that I'm going to agree with most of what other people have to say. You know, I mean, most people I've gotten to know that I think are great if I look deep enough. You know, there's lots of layers. You know, there's outer layers that can be very nice and polite. And then underneath you start to see, oh, this is what's really going on. You know, and then you keep going deeper, you know, and eventually you get to the layer where everybody's innocent. But it can take a lot of work <laughs> to get there. I'm busy enough trying to get there myself, you know. So confirmation bias, they say there's three ways in which it operates. The way that we seek information, the way that we interpret information, and the way that we remember information. So in any of those, confirmation bias can be present. You know, the, well, the internet can be a great example. There is so much stuff, no matter what you believe going into a circumstance, if you want to find information that confirms a particular point of view, you will find it. I don't care what your point of view is. If you, want to, if you believe that the earth is flat, <laughs> there is a lot, I'm sure. I mean, I haven't looked into it, but I understand there's a lot of, of stuff out there that will confirm for you, even mathematically, like there are guys who do... You know, you look at this picture that's supposed to be of the moon. Really, you can tell that it's a painting. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm not interested in going there. Whatever you want to believe, you can find information on the Internet to confirm that for you, um, which really makes, makes it a challenge. It's, you know, it used to be that you know, we sort of trusted scientists to have actually done the experiments and go out and done the research and, like, you know, counted blood cells or measured things with, you know, with an electron microscope and done the... And nowadays, whatever research there is, you'll find someone who's, like, trying to refute it. So it's almost like you have to do the research all over again. Um, and I don't know what ultimately the solution to that is, except that we need to be vigilant about our own desire to confirm something and other people's desire to convince us of things for reasons that may not have to do with objective reality. If something, if research on asbestos is funded by the Asbestos Council, you might look at it a little bit differently, you know, than if it's funded by the World Health Organization. And some people even say, you know, that there is no such thing as objective truth, ultimately. Like, the way the mind filters and perceives information. Like, a memory, for example. Like, the things that I'm sure I remember, you know, they have studied it. Our memory is really very highly inaccurate. And I can be convinced, I'm sure that I had an agreement with you about such and such. And there never was such an agreement. It could have even been the opposite. We have to be careful about the possibility of just becoming cynical in relationship to all this stuff. You know, 
that um, that just 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 to decide that there is no objective reality anyway. So what the heck? But this fog, you know, we 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 want to be careful about letting ourselves fall into this fog where nothing nothing is really objective. There's no nothing to be sure about. And confirmation bias, you know, it's kind of a way that we try to avoid getting into that fog. We try to simplify things. So it's one of these situations where there's layers, like confirmation bias is a defense against the, 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 the glut of information we have to deal with. And when you get into that glut of information, then we need to like find a relationship to that information that helps us find something of a more objective perspective without, um, yeah, without becoming too cynical. We were talking earlier about, you know, the, the guru tradition and, you know, Eastern religion, well, probably spiritual traditions in general. It, it, one of the aims is to try to come to a place where we're having more objectivity. So cutting through a lot of this fog and having a relationship where it's a direct experience of reality. So there's, you know, this physical reality that we're interacting with all the time. And there's, um, there's a level of reality that's even deeper than that, that meditation and some spiritual practices can bring you to. And contact with that level of reality helps clarify some of the fog that we encounter. The material world has such a variety and can be so confusing. Uh, and we have so many like mm -hmm. unconscious uh, prejudices and habits and so on. So meditation and other practices cut through a lot of that fog. It doesn't solve everything for you, but it cuts through some of that fog. And there's an experience, people commonly report this experience, I can say I've had moments of it, of clarity where the, the fog drops away and I kind of know what my place in the universe is. And I think that's something that people commonly are seeking for, to have that experience, whether you have it out in nature, which is just a sense of connectedness with reality and, and feeling present with what is, without the chatter, the mind goes through da 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 da, -da all the time. Um, yeah, so understanding confirmation bias is one of the things we can do to kind of start to cut through some of that thought. Yeah. I mean, I'm always finding confirmation for the beliefs I have about myself, for the identity that I've given. One of the things they say about confirmation bias is it tends to be stronger the more emotional investment we have in something, especially things that have to do with like my identity about myself, you know, who I identify as. Those are the things that really, um, I tend to have predefined opinions and I'm looking for information that really confirms that. And that's one of the things, that's the kind of thing that locks us in position with our habits and, and you know, habits really mostly, habits of activity and, and belief that keep us from being able to experience you know, the bigger picture. You know, there's a thing, you know, you know John Cleese, the guy from Monty Python, Indian <laughs> philosopher, he said regarding creativity, I read an interview where he said, the, re the difference between people who are able to be creative, and he was talking specifically about writing jokes, you know, writing comedy, but he said it applied to everything. The difference between people who are highly creative and people who are less creative is that people who are more creative tend to have more tolerance for lack of resolution. Like you write a joke for a skit, you know, you write a joke. The first one you came up with might be sort of funny, but it's not the funniest one. So if you're willing to kind of hold and say, 
all right, we've got that, but I'm not satisfied necessarily. If you're willing to be dissatisfied, it will typically lead you to a more creative resolution. Do we have the willingness to endure that ambiguity of things being unresolved? It feels quite hellish to live in a space of ambiguity when I would much rather come to a conclusion. Another expression my teacher used uh, was what he called draw no conclusions mind. You know, like in Zen Buddhism, we have this thing called the Zen mind, which is a sort of simple, uh, simple clarity of relating to things as they are, hopefully objectively, but like without a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, beginner's mind. Yeah, beginner's mind. Uh, and draw no conclusions mind is kind of a similar idea where like we're resting in not coming to a conclusion about different things. And that, that can be quite challenging. And we live in a society, I think, that encourages us to come to conclusions because some, to be cynical about it maybe, someone's making money off of the conclusions we draw at any given moment. Um, and that being the case, should be a little bit skeptical about conclusions that we feel you know, compelled to come to. Cynicism is something you always have to watch out for. And cynicism and like resignation, you know, they're kind of cousins, I guess, or something. But um, that's the presumption that, um, you know, and it's true. It's like, you know, people who are depressed or pessimistic probably do get more confirmation, objective confirmation for things. Someone wrote up a very nice thing about you and your books, the glass blowing books that I wrote. Someone wrote a very nice review of it. It was in the newsletter someone who sells my books, you know, that little thing they put on the internet weekly. My first response was, oh yeah, I bet they're, they're trying to undercut us on price. I bet they're having a special sale. <laughs> they're trying to sell them cheaper than I sell them at retail. And actually, sure, and, and my assistant said, oh, you're just being negative. But he looked it up, and in fact, that is what was going on. The only reason they were promoting my books was because they had a special sale. The mind will go towards the sort of cynical perspective. And well, that's, that's in the favor of your, your, your bias theory, because if you're totally biased and you start looking at yourself, then, you know, you're actually challenging your own biases, which, is, which would help you to be more fluid. There is a spiritual tractor beam, but you don't want to go with it. You want to just stay your same old way. Well, then you're not going to benefit from that, right? Yeah. The impulse to evolution, I think we all have a natural impulse towards evolution, which is maybe an expression of that. That tractor beam you're talking about. It's an attraction towards doing that. And we that's what that's what they call a calling. When someone feels like they have a calling, it might take the form of a spiritual practice, but it could take the form of being an actor. It's like I always knew since I was six years old I wanted to be an actor. And someone pursues that and that becomes their spiritual practice, and they use that as a way of transcending their personality and, and growing their soul. You know, there a lot of different creative pursuits can be that sort of thing. You feel called to do it, and it leads to the evolution of your soul. I think the best teachers set you up to be able to learn and experience these things yourself. You know, they help create circumstances that nurture your growth, as opposed to just sitting in the front of the room and telling you things and saying, this is how it is, and handing it to you. Kind of sounds a little bit like fate in some hmm. ways, but... You know, if you if you reduce it to, to what you're saying, isn't all faith kind of blind faith? Because it's blind faith until it's knowing. But I think ideally faith is, is based on something. We all have faith in gravity, right? 
gravity, we're pretty confident. And I drop this, it's going to go down there. I don't have to like check and make sure. People who, who developed a faith through their spiritual practice and experiencing some of these things, their faith in, in the divine, if you want to call it that, is just as solid as our faith in gravity. They know. You know what's going to happen. And I, I wanted to say about faith. There's faith in, and there's faith as a state of being, like mm. faith, hope, and love, wherever, wherever thing that comes from, as a state of being, which is different than having faith in a whatever. And you know, faith is in that respect is kind of like the opposite of cynicism. Cynicism is, is maybe the shadow of faith, where you like assume the worst is going to happen, right? or the worst is is the way things are. Whereas faith might be the presumption that things will work out in some way. Even the circumstance that is like, doesn't seem that good right now, may be leading to something. It might be something that's necessary for your learning and evolution. So a person who has faith might tend to assume that's the case when something negative happens. Like, well, you know, my car broke down. It's, you know, if, you, if your bias is that this kind of thing always happens, and terrible things always happen to me, and your car breaks down, then you interpret the situation as, this is proof that life sucks. Whatever the slippery slope that leads you down, like, I'm so stupid to buy a car that's always a lemon, you know, why? Da-da-da-da-da. And that's one kind of path you can go down. If you have uh, a perspective of faith, your car breaks down, you might say, okay, car broke down, there must be some reason for this. And then you, you, you know, you deal with it however you deal with it. Sense of humor. A sense of humor can be very helpful in that circumstance, or you tend to have more of a sense of humor when you have some faith in the circumstance. Um, but then you might even be looking at the situation as, well, what good is going to come out of this? You know, there must be something good that's going to come out of this. And it might be this exact same chain of events that happened, but maybe you, the tow truck driver who comes turns out to be, you know, he's going to be the, husband, the guy you marry, you know. <laughs> you never know. Whatever. Um, but it's, it's a, just a different perspective on the same experience. You know, the presumption that there is some reason for this, that it is leading to something good, as opposed to... This is just proof that life sucks. And it's funny how it doesn't seem like a choice in the moment. You know, in the moment, our reaction, just like confirmation bias, is like this unconscious reaction. We tend to go right to the thing that we we are inclined to go to. So cultivating faith is something that you typically have to do as like a, an a efforted practice. To, to Okay, you know, I'm... You know, if I, if I catch myself, if through self-observation, which is a necessary spiritual practice, can I become familiar with the fact that when something happens, I tend to interpret it as, this is proof that life sucks. If I've noticed that pattern, you have to see it like usually about 10,000 times. You have to catch yourself doing something, and then you start to notice the pattern. So if after 10,000 times I've noticed, then I might start to develop an ability to say, hang on a minute. Maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe there is some good that is going to come out of this. Instead of that, when the tow truck, the tow truck driver shows up, I'm like being a jerk so that he's never going to want to marry me. <laughs>
Right. Not, I don't know if you're looking to marry a tow truck driver or anything. Never, I always marry them. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but you know, it's like it's just we set ourselves up. We set ourselves up a lot by our biases. I know, but you're, what you're describing is that we vacillate between hope and uh, disappointment, hope and disappointment, which okay. Buddha described as being blown by the four winds mm -hmm. or being blown by the wind, when in fact maybe the glass is not half empty or half full but it's half empty and half full, just what it is. And well, yeah, I was trying to make a dramatic example, right? So it's like when you go to the movies, you see a movie about someone's life, you know, some genius, their life and how creative they were. And in an hour and a half, they have to show you how, in, how, what a genius this person was. So everything becomes sort of exaggerated. So that's kind of how it is when you give a talk, yeah. But your point is well taken. <laughs> a lot of the, the obstacles that we encounter in spiritual practice that are actually hardwired yeah. into us. Someone did a study and they subjected them to, to information that contradicted their belief system. And they were scanning people's brains and literally the same neurons that fire when we're having physical pain were firing. These things are, are part of the organism in the same way you describe. It's like the nervous system evolved in a way that helps us to survive. And in, this, in spiritual work, one of the things we're often up against is the survival mechanism, which is really what the definition of ego is. It's the raw instinctual survival mechanism in all of its elaborations, which take various forms. Sometimes uh, spiritual work is described as work against nature because we have this organic nature because we are animals. We have this, the same nervous system patterns that were developed, you know, amoebas started developing aversion to certain kind of input that was threatening. And that is like the foundation of like everything. Really, I mean, one of the ways of describing what spiritual work is about is just to become more conscious in relationship to, you know, choices we make, what we experience. And that's work against nature in the sense that the survival mechanism is always pulling us into, you know, it's like another kind of tractor beam. You know, it's always pulling us into, um, you know, the, the uh, momentum of just raw, uh, me, not you. I will dominate and control you in order to eliminate the threat that you are to me. And that's what we're always, we're always battling. So confirmation bias is really just one symptom of this greater situation. One of the things I wanted to say about uh, confirmation bias is that it can be useful sometimes to view it as a form of cowardice. So it's like, it's like this shortcut that we use, um, you know, unconsciously, it's a shortcut, but it's actually kind of, it's, it's, it, it can be seen as a form of cowardice. It's shying away from looking at, at the other possibilities that lie outside of our own bias. So if I have a, a belief about whatever, if I think the earth is flat, then information that contradicts that is like a threat to me. So rejecting that information and reinforcing the view that I already have is actually a little bit cowardly. Um, yes, people bias. that have grace of scale, they, they, they make a little risk yeah, because yeah, if you're willing to take risks, you know that kind of courage can uh, lead you to 
step outside the bounds of the comfortable world that we create based on our confirmation bias and other, and other biases. You know, that courage is what enables us to step outside those bounds. There's a saying in business, it's that winners keep track of results and losers keep track of reason. Or maybe it's from sports, I don't know, but I heard about it. So what that means is, uh, you know, the, the reason, like if I, if I am failing in a certain situation, um, I might be tempted to just come up with reasons why that's the case. Uh, you know, like as, as an artist, you, you, you might do craft fairs and sales events. And if the sales aren't good, I've had this experience many times at a craft fair where it's like, there's just not a lot, there's not a lot of customers, whatever. And sales are disappointing. You know, the, the craftspeople, you know, talking to the woodworker on this side and the clay person on that side, you're always coming up with, the, everyone's wanting to come up with theories for why sales are so slow. I mean, that's how you pass your time, right? So there's all these reasons that people come up with. Oh, it's because the weather. Oh, it's because there's a football game. Oh, it's because of it's an election year. Oh, it's, you know, there's a million reasons. And those reasons can be, I and mean, some of them may actually be, in fact, why things are the way they are. Um, but the thing is, the impulse to find reasons for why things are the way they are is different than the impulse to just keep track of the way things are. And what are the results? Okay. So objectively, especially like in a business context, it's like, this event has, gives me this result. And then this other event gives me this result. And you look at ways maybe you can improve it. But you don't get all involved in what the reasons are. So uh, I always, whenever I start coming up with reasons for why things are the way they are, it sets off a little alarm in my head. Like, okay, I might be better off in this circumstance. Instead of coming up with reasons why this thing isn't working out, whatever it is, in whatever domain, instead of coming up with the reasons, because those reasons kind of take it off my shoulders. It's like the reasons make it like, well, it's not really my fault. It's because, you know, the moon is full. When the moon is full, it's, of course people aren't buying things the way they should because the moon is full, you know. It's because it's Thursday. It's Thursday. The child will not go to school, you know. So we have these reasons we come up with. It's, it's a lot better off just to kind of come up with, you know, to measure what are the results. Measure what are the results. And there may be reasons to assign to those, to that also. But focus on what the results are. You know, I, I, this, this path of action led me to this result. And that's what will enable me to make objective decisions. You know, if I'm doing the same thing, you know, it's like the definition of neurosis. Uh, one of the definitions of neurosis is to do the same thing over and over again, but to expect different results. So in terms of, of confirmation bias, like the reasons we come up with for things, and it can be one manifestation of confirmation bias. It's like I'm confirming the bias that I came into this with. I also just want to refer briefly to Castaneda, one of my favorite authors, but one of the things that he says, or that his teacher Don Juan said, was that we live in a bubble of perception. You know, we have our, we have our definition. So there's many ways you could interpret that statement, but we have our perception, we, we have our bias that we're viewing the world through. And one image for that is that we live inside a bubble and when we look out, we don't really see outside the bubble. What we see is a reflection of ourselves on the smooth inside surface of the bubble. So what I'm seeing is my bias that I already have. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of having a conversation with myself. 
you know, and the internet is kind of like a manifestation of that where we have what's called the preference bubble where you set your preferences or your computer just figures out what your preferences are based on what you go to. And pretty soon you're only getting information that confirms your preferences. And that's one of the factors that's contributing, oops, contributing to um, you know, polarization and people being so rigid in, in points of view because we keep just getting the information that confirms that instead of getting the full, the full breadth of the information. So, so what do you do when you've got one confirmation bias butting up against another confirmation bias? You mean within yourself or between two no, people? between two people. Maybe people you know, maybe people you know well, maybe people that you've never met before, but you can see it. The first answer I come up with would be you have to give up your own bias. Because what can you do about the other person? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Give up that expectation. Right. That's what you're saying. But in terms of interpersonal situations, generally it's a matter of what can I, you know, what do I need to get off of? You know, and all you can do is control your own, your own bias. And sometimes miraculously that opens up a space. But yeah. one of the biases we have in any situation is that I don't dare give up my bias because the other person's going to walk over me, all over me, if I don't defend the bias that I have. Get off of your own bias, and that enables you to see what other options there are. And again, this is, it's a thing that's kind of hardwired into us, so it's not like you're going to wipe it out of your life. So I had sort of two categories uh, of dealing with confirmation bias. One is courage. And one is curiosity. They're both kind of antithetical to what confirmation bias is. So courage, uh, accepting the reality of the situation is like a first step. So first of all, accepting, recognizing the existence of confirmation bias, that it's a thing that we have to deal with. Um, recognize its existence and learn how to recognize when it's in play. And again, that's a self-observation, which, as Red Hawk said in his book, takes 10,000 times. You know, or it, seemed, it sure seems like 10,000, just noticing something. And, you know, the way self-observation tends to work is you, at first, you notice the result after the fact, you know. And then as you observe more and more, you start to trace it sooner and sooner in the process so that you begin to see it earlier and earlier and earlier and eventually get to the point where you see confirm the confirmation bias right when it's, coming into play. And then eventually you come to even see before that, you start to see when the impulse towards that bias is arising. Okay, and this is one of the things meditation is very helpful for because it helps you sort of settle down into the different layers of what the mind is up to. And you develop the ability to see things sooner and sooner. And eventually you, get, you can get to the point where you see the impulse towards this bias before, you know, like right before it's, it's kicking in. And then you're able to like, you know, ideally, again, with more further practice, you're able to kind of refrain and rest in that place of just, you know, that objectivity of not going one way or the other. But it takes some work. It takes some work. It's, you know, it's very easy to describe, but not necessarily easy to do. So much of, uh, I think, a, a lot of spiritual work is just overcoming our fear of seeing what's there. You know, because, you know, whether it was trauma or something, you know, there's these things in place that keep us from seeing things objectively. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting to, like, see that thing that you're like, you don't want to see. And 
when you actually see it, it's not that big a deal. But there's so much mass of defense around it. You know, confirmation bias can be one of those things. There's so much massive defensiveness that it seems bigger than it is. And every time we try to go towards it, like, oh, we go, no, 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 let's do this instead. You know, oh, let's go have a chocolate bar. Oh, let's go have a drink. Oh, you know, when really what's needed is just to get to this thing, this little thing that has this mass of defense around it. Yeah. Courage. Courage and curiosity. You know, accepting that discomfort is part of life. Uh, There's a lot in in our society that encourages us to seek comfort, comfort and convenience. And again, someone's making money off of that. (laughs) I mean, there is a natural impulse towards being more comfortable as opposed to less comfortable. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on being comfortable and things being convenient. And, you know, if we can just accept a certain amount of discomfort, then uh, it frees up some of our energy to, to deal with, you know, the life as it is, <laughs> you know, as opposed to trying to avoid that. So also under the category of courage is considering that other views are possible. You know, I talked before about draw no conclusions mind. So just to have... You know, to notice when I'm sure of something, to then kind of catch myself and say, okay, well, maybe, maybe another view is possible. And that's a matter of courage. And also unraveling isolation, you know, confirmation bias, like we were talking about that, that preference bubble, you know, tends to lead us to a kind of isolation where we're just listening to what reinforces what we already think we know. And in practical terms, you know, unraveling isolation can be about, you know, uh, letting go or at least recognizing the tendency to create us and them. You know, to, to say, this is the group I'm identified with, and that's this other group. And they are somehow less real. Their perspective is less real than my perspective. You know, now, I may not agree with their perspective, but they came to that perspective based on something that they think is true, that they were told is true or they believe is true. Someone once said this thing that I think is really tremendously wise and difficult to live up to. But he said, you really need to recognize whatever people are doing, whatever anyone else is doing, typically people really feel they are doing the best they can do. And it can be hard to swallow that on some level. He thinks he's doing the best thing. Man, I can't really quite figure that out, but I can understand the principle of it. Like, I mean, that's what leads us to do the things we do. We think it's the best thing, you know, and they may write some manifesto that I think is crazy, but, you know, and the, the path that led them to that decision, it's based somehow on thinking that, you know, feeling, not just thinking, but feeling in their heart that they're doing the right thing. So, you know, it doesn't mean I have to agree with that person or validate what they're doing in any way. If you, if you start with that perspective, you can have a better chance of understanding why people are doing what they're doing and then creating some kind of communication. And then maybe, you know, like you were talking about when you have two perspectives butting up against each other, that's how you can then start to engage the other person the political domain is kind of the surface, but we're, I'm, I'm wanting to get down to a little deeper level. 
know, being curious about why, like, why is it? Why do they feel that? But I think we're at the point where we need to end and maybe have some tea. Yeah. Yeah.